Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Fresh Air News Explains, the US election. Last week on the show we discussed the US political system as a whole, so this week we're going to be delving into the nuts and bolts of the election itself which is rapidly approaching. So today on the show we're going to be discussing some key dates for the election, the system of primaries and caucuses. We're going to take a look at party conventions, how they work and what their aims are. We're also going to take a look at the electoral college system, which I think a lot of people find very confusing, so we're going to try and break that down. And finally, we'll be looking at the difference between swing and safe seats. So let's get started. My name's Lucy, um, I'm in third year and I'm studying English literature um, and I really wanted to get involved in the podcast because um, I find American politics quite confusing and um, seems a lot more convoluted than UK politics and I thought it'd be a good way to kind of learn on the job. Okay, my name is Fam and I'm a law student. So I mean, this is going to be, yeah interesting topic about US politics. It's going to be more like than last week, you know. Hi, I'm Bridget and I'm a third year English Lit student as well. Um, I've always been interested in US politics, but I thought it would be interesting to kind of get more into like the technicalities of it, learn a bit more about how things work. And yeah, I also like just having a chat about it. It's fun. So. I think, yeah, technicalities we're sort of focusing on this week. I found in my research there's loads of weird, like, quirks and stuff that, like, yeah. is, is, is really strange. So I'm Meg, a third year history and politics student, and I joined this podcast because I think engagement with US politics is so important right now. And I was on the first episode and I really enjoyed it. So glad to be back. Uh, yeah, you guys can call me Maggie if you want. It's a little bit easier. Maggie, cool. Um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I am just here. I'm in my 12th day of quarantine. From I just came from Florida. I'm originally from Chicago. And I, it's a very interesting time to be talking about American politics. And last night I was watching the town halls and my friends and I are texting at 4 a.m. And this is way better for my time schedule. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't know you were quarantining, Meg. Is that just because coming back from... I got here on October 6th. Okay, and I how's it going? Um, they give you a lot of apples. I have I've heard like a lot of oranges. Orchard. <laughs> Do you? I, see, I like oranges better. I mean, apples just have like a gross core at the end. So anyway, um, but no, I mean, whatever, it's, it's fine. But yeah, I'm excited to get out of here. Hi, I'm Isaac. I'm a third year international relations with quantitative methods student. And I joined the podcast because in our flat we talk about US politics all the time, so we might as well record it and annoy others with it as well. And I'm Felix. I'm a third year English Lit student. And I say this every week. Uh, maybe by the end I won't have to say this, but I joined the podcast because I don't know anything about US politics at all and just wanted to, to be able to have that dinner party conversation, you know, when when... You don't feel like an idiot. So we're going to start by talking about a couple of bits that have been in the news this week. Um, Isaac had a really good suggestion, which was the Gretchen Whitmer kidnap attempt. Isaac, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so um, Gretchen Whitmer is the governor of Michigan. Uh, she's a Democrat and she was actually subject of a kidnap attempt that was revealed on the 8th of October by the FBI. Um, they planned to hold a treason trial, whatever that is. And um, Whitmer was actually the target because of her COVID-19 policies that she implemented in Michigan. And uh, they planned to either storm the Capitol building, which is the seat of their government, or attack her at her own personal home. And uh, Whitmer actually blames um, Donald Trump for stoking all this hatred and distrust in the country, um, whereas Trump has taken credit for all of the FBI's work and has criticised Governor Whitmer for calling him a white supremacist and has condemned most of the Democrats for running down their cities. Um, I found an immediate, I don't know if it's the same for you guys, I found an immediate connection with maybe like the murder of Joe Cox um, in that, and I thought that was really quite scary, and it sort of shows what happens when, because they're trying to make a, a point, aren't they? They're trying to make a political yeah. point, and that's just, that just really terrifies me, because I don't think that there's obviously a difference between p- politics and personal lives and, and they shouldn't really intertwine. I don't know if anyone else had any views about that. I was going to say, yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Joe Cox murder. The word like traitor specifically was um, what I thought like paralleled them both together. And it's I think it's very concerning that you've kind of got this idea of someone being a traitor because they go against certain values that a certain group hold and they're kind of now judging everybody by this standard and just the kind of ideas that I think you get a lot on like the Donald Trump speeches about America and having such a specific idea of America that anything that kind of deviates from that is traitorous and yeah I just thought it was a really kind of concerning development. It's just so telling the language that they're using to discuss this whole thing Um, and you know not using terrorists and not using white supremacists and um, like Proud Boys and stuff like that. Just another add to the fire. And again, it's like divisive, isn't it? Which it really shouldn't be when something like this happens. Um, in slightly lighter news, uh, I guess, depending on who you support, uh, Joe Biden this week, I think, has taken the highest lead that a candidate ever has since scientific polling began. So higher than Obama was um, before. I think his lead over the president now is 54 to 43 correct me if i'm wrong um and we were talking last week about whether donald trump getting covid would improve or lessen his chances of election and i think maybe that result now is is getting a little bit more obvious does anyone else have any other news stories that they wanted to to bring up or talk about at all i just thought it was um i don't know if you guys saw but um there was like video footage of um i think it was the largest um residential sort of old people's home um, in Florida and it was all out for um, Biden in the golf carts and stuff and I just think that's um, it's looking quite positive for Biden yeah I think more this week than maybe even last week it's sort of yeah things are things are looking looking that way So let's let's get into it. So today we're going to be talking, obviously, about the sort of nuts and bolts of the actual election. Um, so we're going to be going through some key dates for the election. Lucy's going to be taking us through the primaries and caucuses, which I don't understand at all. So that's going to be great to to know a little bit more about that. Bridget and Fam going to be looking at the party conferences and conventions, uh, and then we're going to be looking at the electoral college system. 
Um, and then the difference between swing seats and safe seats as well, which I think is quite heightened, maybe more there than here. So that'll be quite interesting. Um, but just very quickly, some sort of key dates and, and the sort of timeline, something I found quite interesting and that I didn't actually know was the prevalence of like early voting in, in the US. Um, I mean, if you compare that to the UK, where everyone either has to vote on polling day or they can vote by post as well. Um, I mean, granted, it's probably because the population's about five times the size. But v- something that really surprised me is that you can vote in person as early as the 9th of September in Alabama. Um, and then Minnesota, South Dakota, Virginia and Wyoming join on the 18th. And then it's basically moving on sort of every couple of days. Another state gets added from that. Um, but I found that really interesting. You can also vote by post. Um, various different deadlines for that as well. And another thing that I found quite interesting was that the latest deadline was on the 23rd of November. So that's quite a long time after the end of the election because the election obviously on the 3rd of November. And also, I, I, I don't know what you guys feel about this, but surely people voting by post in those places will feel like their voices don't really count because almost certainly the election is sort of decided either the morning after the the election night or or quite soon after like last time it, I think it was decided on the Wednesday morning and the election was on a Tuesday um, so I thought that was quite strange and actually again interestingly I think they're expecting this election to be the first one where more than half of the electorate will have voted before election day and this has been seen already you know there are 11 hour queues to vote in some states um, and then yes there are also debates which are a key part of the election calendar so we spoke last week about the first presidential debate which took place on the 29th of September then we had the vice presidential debate on the 7th of October and then as I say we didn't have a second presidential debate that should have happened on the 15th but instead we had these sort of town hall I don't know like Q&A sessions Meg do you did you did you say you watched some of them last night yeah and and what what were they like well so I was trying to you know um they were talking about how the only way Trump will win this would be in the ratings because it is sort of like watching a, you know, dumpster fire. Um, so I was trying to watch the Biden one and those that was pretty normal, like back and forth. You know, you're sort of like cringing a little bit because even as a Biden supporter, uh, he's very old. <laughs> but then I would like flip to Trump and it was like, what is happening? Like he he was talking about QAnon and you're and she's calling him an old crazy uncle and it's just mind blowing that this is these are the same people like these both of these people are applying for the same job it's so crazy and interestingly i thought as well they both decided to schedule them at the same time well trump scheduled his after biden so you yeah. know trump said that he didn't want to do virtual and because he would fail and then he and town hall is not good for him either like even when he debated hillary he was like stalking her like a deer it was so creepy like the press on that was so bad for him um even though he won um but so with biden i understand why he didn't want to do it but then the only way he's going to win is to say like here are the numbers of people that watch me and a person like me who's hate watching him is actually giving him some some of these you know eyeballs (laughs) so it's almost like yeah that there are a lot of people watching it's like when you drive past a very crude analogy, but it's like when you drive past a car crash and you can't help but like look at it. Um, yeah. That's yeah. I hadn't thought about him sort of watching the ratings like that, and and yeah, that's not really a measure of success. Um, interesting. And then just finally, in terms of dates, 
we should get a final presidential debate hopefully on the 22nd of October but again by this time quite a lot of people will already have voted so I, it's strange um, and then finally as we all know the election day is on the 3rd of November and then the inauguration hopefully on the 20th of January um, and now I think Lucy is going to talk a little bit about moving right back to the first stage of the process about the primaries and caucuses. Um, so the election process in the US is different in some ways from the election process here in the UK, but also I would say there are some very similar aspects. So as in the UK, in the US, each party selects their one nominee for president and the whole party then campaigns on their behalf and pushes their political agenda. But the actual process of picking that presidential nominee is different in the US and in the UK. And I think some people find it hard to get their head around it because it is a lot more convoluted. But as you said, Felix, I think that's to do with the size of America. We forget that this is like this is a massive, massive country. So it's a big political operation to get one candidate picked. So in the US, the election process initially begins with the primary elections and the caucuses. Um, so what are primaries and what are caucuses? Um, so taking primaries first, at their most basic level, they are the process by which each party in each state votes for the presidential nominee they want to represent them. Um, so I think we should unpack that a little bit because it is a lot more complicated than just that one simple statement. So each party, be it the Democrats or the Republicans, they have a whole roster of potential nominees for the president. So constitutionally, to be a US presidential nominee, the candidate must be a natural born citizen of the US. They have to be at least 35 years old and they have to have been a resident in the US for 14 years. If a candidate meets all these criteria, they can nominate themselves. So as you can imagine, if you look at a voting slip um, for the presidential uh, election, it, I mean, candidates, there's loads and loads and loads of them. Um, so once they've nominated themselves, they have to win their party's approval, as each political party can only have one nominee. And that's where the primaries tend to come in. It's quite a convoluted system, but essentially in every US state and territory, a primary is held roughly a year before the presidential election. Um, each party hold their own primaries, so that's why you might hear people referring to Republican primaries and Democratic primaries. Okay, so the more votes a candidate gets at the primary, the more delegates they are awarded, and the number of delegates a candidate can be awarded differs from state to state. So for example, in, Ca in California this year, there were 415 Democratic delegates up for grabs, but in New Hampshire it was only 24. Um, so what is a delegate? So delegates are usually party activists or local political leaders and they vote on behalf of the candidate at the annual party convention. So this can be a bit confusing to get your head around. So for instance, if candidate A won 20 delegates in a particular state, then those 20 delegates would be obliged to vote for them at the annual convention. And this year-long primary season ends at the party convention, which is usually held in the summer before the presidential election. And the candidate with the most delegates is then nominated as that, as that party's official presidential nominee. Usually, um, the candidate who has won over 50% of the delegates, um, they become the nominee. But if no candidate has won over 50%, then it goes to a second vote and the delegates are then able to vote for whoever they wish. They don't have to have it mandated by the state. Um, so caucuses and how do they come into this process? Um, so caucuses differ from primaries in that they are what we would refer to as an open vote. 
um, as opposed to closed votes or secret votes at primaries. So at primaries, when you vote, you vote at a poll in a booth and nobody can see how you how you vote. But at caucuses, people attend a meeting where they vote on their preferred candidate via headcount or a show of hands. So the meeting is in a select location. You can't just turn up to a polling station like at a primary. Um, so similar, like similarly to primaries, each party holds their own caucuses, but caucuses aren't used so much in modern politics today. The Democrats only had four caucuses this year. Um, the primary season uh, normally kicks off in February with caucuses in Iowa. Um, an early win for a candidate in Iowa can give their campaign a boost in momentum and sometimes a much needed financial boost as well. Loads of donations tend to come pouring in with an early win. But candidates that do well in Iowa usually fade by the end of the primary season. They, they peak too early, basically. And with regards to the Republican Party, Iowa hasn't opted for the eventual Republican nominee since 2000. Um, the big test for candidates comes on Super Tuesday. This is usually roughly the 3rd of March. So on Super Tuesday, 16 states vote for their preferred candidate. That means that one third of all the delegates available in the entire primary season, they're up for grabs on that one day. So usually by the end of Super Tuesday, it's much clearer who will be the front runner for the presidential nominee. Um, so, for instance, this year, Democratic candidates Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were clear favourites by the end of um, Super Tuesday. Um, so that's a general overview of them. And it might sound like primaries and caucuses are quite complex events for political nerds. But I actually think primary season can be some of the best viewing of the whole kind of election theatre. Um, and the battle between candidates from one party can be it can be quite fierce and usually primaries expose the factions and internal conflicts within each party that's why they are so interesting to watch so i don't know if we kind of think back to 2016 primary season the democratic primary was dominated by the rise of bernie sanders i don't know if any of you remember the feel the burn memes and t-shirts and um, even in the uk i was aware um of him really rising to prominence during the primary season and the threat that he posed to what was then a presumed Hillary Clinton nomination was it was quite big. At one point, a lot of people thought he would be nominated. Um, Hillary didn't have as smooth a ride in the primaries as she would have wanted. She lost out to Sanders in quite a lot of states, I think in Iowa, at the caucus as well. And she still blames this in part on her going on to lose the 2016 election to Trump. I think, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but there's a recent documentary series um, for Sky and Hulu, I think, in America. And she went on to say that nobody liked Sanders and nobody wanted to work for him. So the primaries can involve a lot of mudslinging. And um, in my opinion, they're very good uh, political viewing. Is it, this is maybe a silly question, is it all sort of self-funded by each candidate, Lucy? Um, so it's very, I think finances are something that should be talked about more for candidates. Um, obviously, naturally, the candidates that have lots of money to spend are going to do better because they can spend more money. There's quite a lot of laws, as in the UK, there's an electoral commission that really um, polices how much money a candidate can get. But the candidates that get more donations from, you know, richer donators are going to do better i don't think you could self-fund a, a primary election or even a presidential election we're talking about vast sums of money we're talking about millions and millions of pounds um but the more contacts you had so hillary clinton through bill clinton through her time in the senate through um you know uh, his governorship she had a lot of contacts so she was able to you know get a lot of money from that same with Bernie Sanders Bernie Sanders is quite interesting actually when you look at it because it's a grassroots movement so he relied, he relied on lots of small donations to make up this overall massive sum whereas people like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton through their contacts and through their networks they got the bigger sums 
Um, so finances can make up a very interesting part of the primary election season. And I guess that differs from here as well, because here you sort of have to be a member of, you have to work your way up through the party. And that's why you get these sort of career politicians. And I guess that's the same for lots of people, but people like Donald Trump can just throw money at it. And Kanye, the fact that Kanye West is a potential, you know, candidate is, I don't know if that's alarming or quite good. For candidates such as Bernie Sanders, that must be so frustrating to, you know, to kind of devote your whole life to politics and grassroots movements and then to have someone like Kanye West come in and everyone's talking about him and he steals all the attention away from you, steals all the donations away from you. It can be very frustrating, I, I can imagine. No, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you, Lucy. Now I think Bridget and Fam are going to talk a little bit about party conferences. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the party conference. So my my talk is going to be on the theoretical perspective, and I think we're going to talk about what's going to happen this week. So in the US, a party conference is called a political convention, and there is a meeting of a political party to select the candidates for office, or to decide a party policies, or to adopt a party platform, and to set the rules for party electoral activities. Um, the, the political convention can be held at the local, state, or national level. In modern day, the largest convention in the US, as you can see, is a national convention of Democrats and Republican parties that are used to select the presidential, presidential candidate. I mean, this is held every four years, according to every general election, um, and the the convention gonna happen before the US presidential election date. So it's gonna be around this month and last month, yeah. But because of COVID, there they are canceled about the talk. But in terms of the nominee, I don't think COVID gonna affect this as much as it should be because as you can see, I mean, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they, they both are nominated without any interruption by the COVID by the COVID, um, yeah. And like, as Lucy said, um, the convention is attended by delegate and the person who get the majority vote from delegate in the convention will be nominated to be the presidential candidate of the political parties. I mean, the Democrat and Republican parties, I mean, these two parties have different rules to decide the amount of vote to win the majorities. I mean, on this year, I mean, as I can, as I see from the news, I mean, Democrat Party decide that um, the candidate need to have at least nine one thousand nineteen nineteen. No, it's like one nineteen ninety one vote from delegate to win the majorities. And yeah, Joe, Joe Biden, I think he got more than two thousand, and that's why he won. That's why he won. Yeah, and for Republican parties, I mean, they have only two candidates. It's Donald Trump and another guy. I I'm I don't know his name because I look at the parties and they didn't mention it. But I mean, in, in, the, in the Republican Party's um, website, they, they mentioned that um, the candidate need to get like 1,276 votes to win the majorities. And of course, I mean, Donald Trump, he win, like, he won a lot of majorities. I mean, it's, it exceed another candidate. But I think it's more like kind of um, the, the parties, the, the Republican Party, they, they intend to nominate Donald Trump to be president again. It's unlike the, the Democrat parties because the Democrat Party, there are, there are many candidates, like around 14 candidates. And yeah, and I think Bernie Sanders, he got the second majority vote, like behind Joe Biden. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Sure. 
amazing thank you very much fam and now i think bridget you're gonna chat a little bit about like the other functions of the conventions because they're not just there to again as in as they are in the uk they're not just there to elect um the the candidate there there are other functions as well yeah definitely there's a lot more to them than i'd kind of originally realized so i think quite a lot of the time conventions are quite a good opportunity for kind of younger politicians or maybe politicians who haven't been in the game so long to have an opportunity to kind of make their name on the big stage. So obviously, I mean, not in COVID times, but before then, there would be a lot of kind of warm up speeches. And that was a really good opportunity for younger politicians to make a big speech, get some attention, some media attention. I think quite notably in 2004, it happened with Barack Obama, who was pretty unknown then, um, but gave a very famous speech in the 2004 Democrat convention that kind of had a lot of people thinking, oh, he's doing really well. Like, who is this guy? Maybe he's the next big thing. And I read an article from The Atlantic that was actually saying that they considered the convention to be an audition for the next president kind of thing. So even though the attention obviously in the Republican and Democrat conventions this year was on Joe Biden and Donald Trump, you also have quite a few people looking at other speakers and wondering, oh, this person could be the successor to Joe Biden kind of thing. And also they've got a role in um, determining the party policy quite a lot. Again, not so much this year. But a lot of the time you can have debates between different delegates. It's not just attended by delegates as well. There's also a lot of people who are kind of just supporters of each party, volunteers, staffers, you know, those kind of people who are quite interested in having a bigger debate about the policies as a whole rather than the specific people leading the party. And you also have quite a lot of, I think it's quite easy to tell from each convention what the parties will focus on for the upcoming election. I think you could tell from the Biden and Trump speeches that we had this convention about what they were going to focus on. Obviously, the main topic was COVID-19, but you had a lot of Donald Trump saying, you know, we'll be stronger on law and order, we'll be stronger on security. You had Joe Biden saying we'll protect Medicare, we'll, you know, we'll support refugees more, and we'll focus more on mask wearing, like kind of all the smaller things. And when you see those talked about, you can kind of understand where things are going from there, really. So there's quite a lot more to it than you might expect, I think. Mm-hmm. And you spoke about COVID-19. Obviously, that's had an effect. Um, what has, what's that changed about the, the conventions? It's changed pretty much everything, really. Um, you can kind of tell because the whole point of conventions is you have a lot of people gathered together. You have a very kind of celebratory atmosphere. You have a lot of like people getting close, people meeting new people. And obviously, pretty much all of that has had to stop. So they've all had to make quite big changes quite quickly. Um, the Democrats have, they, they had to move their conference and push it back. So it was originally going to be in, I think, July, and they pushed it to August. They changed the venue so it would be smaller. They had a lot of like pre-recorded speeches from people like Nancy Pelosi and Michelle Obama. They had quite a lot of mask wearing, social distancing. What they did, which I thought was really interesting, was they had a kind of the roll call vote, which they usually have every conference or convention. And it's just really like the states, each delegate from each state, you know, who represents the state saying, oh, from Hawaii, we give, say, 10 votes to Joe Biden. Well, this year they did that all electronically. So basically via Zoom. So a person from each state would make a short little video about how they'd vote. And that was broadcast to the whole hall, which was really interesting, I thought, because it made things a bit more accessible, I'd say. And it gave quite a lot of 
diverse voices, you know, voices from different places. And it gave them a chance just to say a few minutes about their state, you know, often introducing, say, Hawaii, which was a really interesting approach. And I quite like that. And I actually heard somebody describe it as... um, this made me laugh like the Eurovision song contest without any of the camp and trashiness which I just really enjoyed it as as a description and the Democrats was also quite funny because we we could all kind of see what was happening we all knew that Joe Biden would get the nomination but he still had to you know like pretend to be shocked when it was called you know he had to be like I've won like didn't didn't expect that so that was good as well and the Republicans took quite a similar approach but it was different for them. They were quite criticised for not being COVID friendly enough because even though they had, they did have some mask wearing, they did have some social distancing, but they did the roll call vote in person rather than via Zoom. And a lot of the speeches were in person. A lot of them were outside, but Donald Trump came into a lot of criticism because he did his acceptance speech from the White House lawn. And that's kind of frowned upon because then you're kind of mixing up government and party politics, which isn't good. And they also had quite a few positive cases amongst Republican like attendees of the convention. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting um, after kind of looking at the speeches was that typically the nominees would get what's called like a convention bounce in the polls. So obviously because their conventions have been like on television and on social media for a few days, they often get a lot more attention and then they get a convention bounce, usually of maybe like two or three points. It's usually not that significant and it usually kind of ends. Also, they both even out because obviously they both have conventions. But this year you couldn't really see that at all. Neither of them did particularly well or particularly badly in the polls. So I thought that was interesting. I guess it suggests that maybe people aren't as interested in a convention when it's all kind of online and there's not maybe a physical aspect to it. I know that a lot of the time people were saying that it was a bit kind of maybe boring to just watch people give a speech without having an audience reaction. I had a question about the sort of bounce thing. Is that, do you think, the reason why parties and maybe actually why the Republicans this time didn't want to sort of dumb down their convention and they wanted to make it as normal as possible because it does have an impact on the polls. And actually there's a chance this year maybe to sort of one-up the other party. Yeah, yeah, I think that could definitely be a reason. Yeah, I think the problem with conventions that are in person is that they're very difficult to kind of control and you often can't control the audience, how they'll feel about something. Like sometimes you have a speech that you you might think was quite well written, but does get some boos from the audience and maybe there's some bad publicity. So I think maybe what the Republicans like about this type of conference, you know, something that's online, is that you can very easily edit out things you don't like. You can make sure that everyone follows your message. So if you are kind of just struggling in the news in general, it's probably good to have something that you have slightly more control over, which I think might be quite attractive, yeah. Sure, sure. Does anyone else have any questions for Bridget or Fam about uh, conventions? For me, like, honestly, when I do some kind of research, I still confuse about the term of delegate in terms of superdelegate because they, they, they are separate things. I think a superdelegate is a specifically Democrat thing. And I think it's the kind of, you have your normal delegates who represent the states and then a super delegate is someone who, as you say, fam, is maybe considered elite, even though they shouldn't be, but people who've been presidents before, like I know Bill Clinton is a super delegate, people who are maybe governors, senators, they have an elected role as well as representing a state. And I think there's been a bit of controversy about them because in circumstances where you have maybe a draw 
on the convention floor, which obviously didn't happen this year, but maybe in the future, the superdelegates, they can vote and their vote has slightly more of a weight. Someone correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, so I think a lot of people think that is quite elitist and it shouldn't necessarily be the people who already have elected influence who get to have kind of a bigger say on those things. I know that a big part of Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 was that he didn't want any superdelegates to be involved because, as as you say, he was from a grassroots movement. So he could kind of see that a lot of the hierarchy and the Democrats wouldn't want him to succeed. There was also a potentially a situation where Hillary Clinton um, was a nominee and had uh, it gone to a vote, her husband could have voted as a superdelegate, which is a, obviously a major conflict of interest. And I think that's the idea um, about superdelegates. And also, I think people talk about how, well, if the Democrats have superdelegates, why don't the Republicans? Like, it, you know, I mean, is this really necessary as a function? Um, but I think the main one for that was Bernie Sanders was particularly concerned about Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, conflict of interest, were the superdelegate to be needed. Does Republican has a kind of support that they get as well, like Democrats, because like I'm not sure about this because when I some have some kind of research, I I know I have all the information in terms of Democrat, but in Republican they they're just following their rules in in the in the in the book like the rule of the parties. I think it's also really worth pointing out that constitutionally there like there is no constitutional law that de- that governs the primary process, and there's quite a lot of debate about whether or not that should be put in place because if you think about it there's a constitutional law that protects the election but what about the election of the people that are getting elected if you see what I mean I think that's uh, something that's quite interesting quite controversial I was just going to say I don't think the Republicans have what the Democrats call superdelegates but I know that a lot of the Republicans who are also the elite you know high up in the Republican rankings maybe senators or that kind of thing they have certain rules whereby if there is a tie or, you know, if there's some sort of event where they need to vote, they're not necessarily bound to vote for the candidate that they had originally supported or that, like, they're kind of pledged to support. They're not under that pledge. So they could just vote for whichever one they wanted. Although the convention in that case is that they would vote for whom their state voted for. So it would be quite rare for you to kind of go against your state as a governor or senator, that would be quite unusual. But they do have that power, which normal delegates don't have. So I think in both systems, there is a a, a kind of hierarchy between delegates. I feel like Democrats, the Democratic Party has just formalized it, uh, calling it superdelegates. I feel like um, in the Republican Party, I would call them good old boys. Like they're the people that have been there the longest and just sort of have, they're like the people that live in the C-suite, you know, like the the CEOs of companies and stuff. So, and they're not beholden to, like you said, uh, to vote for the their what their constituents might be asking for. That was a huge thing with Hillary and, and Sanders is that they called it really early. Um, there were superdelegates um, involved and they think that if they would have kept going, maybe Bernie would have been able to, you know, rise up. And I mean, the idea of, People electing someone who elects someone else is mirrored in the actual voting. I mean, we're going to go on now to talk about the Electoral College, but in its most basic form, the US public don't elect the president directly. They elect someone who elects the president. And again, I found this amazing, but the people who they elect don't actually have to elect who they've 
said they will, if that makes sense. And uh, we'll get on to talk about that. And it hasn't ever really happened in practice, I don't think. Um, but Meg, did you want to do a little introduction to the electoral college system? Sure. Uh, the electoral college system is basically broken down by how many people per state vote. Like you're supposed to take all the votes from your state and let's say that your population, like California has 55 electoral college votes and Vermont has three uh, because of population size. So if your population votes in California for Democrats, theoretically all 55 of those electoral college uh, representatives should vote for the Democrat. And then that's how it's all split up. And that's how there are red states and blue states. And for instance, I come from Illinois. Illinois is always going to be blue. Like it'll be blue forever. So every vote that goes into that jar is, it could be overflowing with blue votes and you're still gonna get the same number of electoral college votes. Whereas someplace like Florida, swing state, um, it could go blue or red. And if it's like 50-50 in that jar, it that's where it just is close and who knows what's going to happen so it's decided specifically by those states because something i found really weird as well there are loads of things that i'm just like why is that the case and there are reasons for it but but something i found quite strange is is again this winner takes all system um so even if the vote was like split 50.1 percent and 49.9 percent they would still get the entirety of that state's votes apart from in two states which i think are maine and nebraska where the votes are split more proportionally. Um, But for example, in 2016, I read that Michigan had a 0.3% difference in in voting. So that's only about 13,000 actual votes. But Trump still received all of the state's 16 electoral college votes. So that, yeah, that doesn't sit quite sort of right with me. I thought that was a bit weird. Yeah, the electoral college is tricky. <laughs> yeah, and in, but in order to win the election, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, a presidential candidate needs 270 votes um, out of the... Oh, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> out of the 538. Um, and that's, I think, why it's often possible to announce the president-elect sort of unofficially early. And that's why the president sort of takes the victory when they know they've got 270. But then the actual election takes place on... December the 14th um, and I mean some of the reasons for implementation of that we spoke a little bit about last week so for the sort of reasons why the electoral college system's in place I think originally it was to stop large states from having too much of an influence and I think that was important in getting the smaller states to actually ratify the constitution um, but again I think it's it, it's again to prevent this sort of idea of like swings in public opinion um, and uh, yeah attempt to kind of control the public without being too undemocratic i don't know if you'd agree with that meg yeah i think it's gotten a little bit um divisive over since probably gore v bush um that's where it really started to come up where you're actually yeah we're we're winning the popular vote but we're losing the presidency which just that's not how people in in america think about democracy they think you know their vote matters um and so in a lot of these places, it's just so frustrating uh, to see while you're watching, especially on election night, because even though we do have um, mail-in voting, most people still do vote in the polls on the day of the, you know, the Tuesday. And 
um, you're sort of watching. They, they don't release information or they speculate while before California has closed their polls. Like they don't they don't give actual numbers until California has closed their polls. So you're like watching the map like kind of go across and they're saying like blue state, red state. And you look at the map and there's so much red on that map. But all of those places put together fit inside California. So if we actually went by population, there would never be another Republican president again. Like, I mean, it would just be, it would be really difficult. I, I think the another issue is that, I mean, we should say that it's, it's weird. People say that the, the sort of popular vote thing doesn't happen very often, but it's happened twice since 2000. So in 2016, obviously last time Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote, but he won the election and in 2000 as well. Um, and it's happened three other times before that. But then I think the system also, again, correct me if I'm wrong, distorts the kind of one person, one vote idea, as, as you've kind of spoken about, Meg. So one thing I found quite interesting was a citizen in Wyoming has a vote which is worth almost four times as many votes as a citizen in California. Um, and then the other issue is that there's an opportunity for a tie. Um so yeah, in theory, two candidates could both receive two hundred and sixty-nine votes. That's only happened once, I think. Um, and then yeah, does it then go to the Senate or the yeah I or think Congress it's in general? The House of Representatives. I think Isaac, you spoke about that. Is that right? Yeah, it goes to the House of Representatives to elect the president, and the Senate elects the vice president. So people um... say that that doesn't happen, but it's kind of credible, obviously. Um, and then the, the, the we've again I've spoken about this very very briefly, but the final sort of quirk of the system that I found crazy is that the electors don't actually have to go along with the vote that they have been elected to make. Um, they can basically elect whoever they want, and actually this has happened, but it's never altered the outcome of the election. So I guess I don't know. Does it does it happen in the UK? I don't think anything like that really happens. I was just going to say that I suppose the controversy over the electoral college system could be compared to the controversy over the kind of first past the post system that we have in the UK here it kind of um it I don't really know how to describe it in kind of good academic terms but I think it makes it much more likely that a big party basically it makes um politics much more kind of like a two-party system I suppose in the same in the US I mean we really you know speaking in kind of like quite colloquial terms it's really a race between the democrats and the republicans and the same here for the past few years it's been a race between the labor and the conservatives because of this first press post system so i suppose it is kind of uh, in that sense comparable yeah and another thing that i the only other thing i can compare it to in england is the sort of technicality that if we have a referendum which is quite a recent phenomenon the government has no legal constitutional obligation to listen to the result of that and that's i think why lots of people were calling for the referendum on the eu to be overturned and they would never do that but it's it's i guess comparable i'm not sure um meg no i was just going to jump on the end of that and just say um when you were talking about them like popular vote and um so like candidates such as like Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote and obviously Donald Trump getting in we have had like a few instances of that like it's not as common of course but I think it's 1951 there was an election between like Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee I think Attlee lost it to Churchill and Attlee actually won like 48.8% of the vote and uh, Winston Churchill won like 48 so it's really it's really slim but it has happened here as well. I, I guess those are, there are reasons for it as Meg said if it wasn't the case then uh, did you say a Democrat would never win? A Republican. A Republican, win. sorry, would never win the election again. And that's, yeah. well, that's whatever you make of I it. I genuinely, but... 
I can't think of a city in uh, I can't think of a large city in the United States that's not democratic. Yeah, I think I think that's the case. I think like um that's the case with England, uh, Britain as well. Sorry, because like I know like with the boundaries of the constituencies and stuff, which I think is pretty similar in America. It's like all the inner cities, uh, so condensed with people that they are majority Labour, and that would that would be the case as well in the UK. And now I think just finally Isaac and Meg are going to be talking a little bit about the difference between swing seats and safe seats. Yeah, so um, bluntly, safe seats are those who are predictably blue or red, and 38 out of the 50 states have voted the same since the 2000 presidential election, so it's quite easy to predict which states will vote for who. Um, But swing states are those states who do not vote along party lines and therefore determine the outcome of the election. These are the states which candidates uh, are directly target. Um, they have populations that are closely politically divided and they often swing back and forth between Democratic and Republican candidates. Uh, so these swing states can vary across elections depending on the candidates and the current political climate. In 2016, the swing states were generalised by a man named uh, Larry Sabato as uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Arizona, Georgia, Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Nevada, Colorado, North Carolina and Maine. So only a few. <laughs> um, and swing states are not an accident. The swing state has been important since the 1800s, whereby Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson took an interest in winning particular states. Then swing states were entrenched in the wake of the Civil War as salient issues like slavery began to divide voters. Whilst the concepts of swing states are as old as the Electoral College itself, it wasn't popularised till Roosevelt, and then it became common during the 2000 election. So like, just going over what creates a swing state usually, um, it can be due to do with population change. And this is because urban areas tend to vote Democrat, which we've talked about, and rural areas Republican. Um, and when citizens move around the country, they can alter the balance. Um, you've got ideological polarisation, which is the ideological divide between the parties, which has strengthened since the 2000s. And as parties divide, they can change whether a state is a swing or not. Um, and then you've got moderate politics in a state where... Sorry, in a state with more moderate voters, the divide between Republicans and Democrats narrow, and this drives a two-party uh, competitiveness. So, um, in polling terms, uh, states and the District of Columbia are referred to as either safe, likely, lean, tilt, or toss-up. Uh, swing states would tend to be categorised as lean, tilt, or toss-up in uh, presidential and uh, federal elections, and these are states that are not guaranteed to be won by either party. Um, So Florida is an example of a tilt or toss-up state um, and Florida is considered the most important swing state due to its unpredictability and large scale. Pundits often look towards Florida to predict the outcome of a presidential election and there is a reason for this. The winner of Florida has won the presidency in every presidential race since 1964 so it's definitely not to be ignored. Um, So campaign spending in swing states is a lot higher than spending in safe states. Um, Parties and candidates won't waste their money in a state where they're guaranteed to win or lose. This means that Democratic safe states like California and New York and Republican safe states like Kansas and North Dakota are likely to gain any attention during election cycle as the parties pander to the swing states. In 2020, the campaign spending has reflected the competitive states. For example, $257.5 million has been spent in Florida this campaign. Uh, Rounding out the top five biggest battlegrounds are the three Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin and the state of North Carolina. Interestingly, this year, there has been a lot of spending by Democrats in states that they haven't won in a lot of years. The Democratic Party has spent $59 million in Arizona, a state they haven't won since 1996. And they've also spent $4 million in Georgia, a state that hasn't voted for them since 1992. 
The most interesting newly competitive state in the 2020 election is Texas, uh, where Democrats have spent $7.1 million, despite not winning the state since 1976. Swing states are certainly one to watch in 2020, and most polls and political commentators believe that it will be a huge swing from Trump to Biden. As I think we all potentially think as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hope and pray for. Hope for. <laughs> um, interesting. And Isaac and Meg, um, are swing states sort of, sorry, are safe seats and swing seats sort of categorised and that is it? Or is there scope for sort of change in which ones are safe? Do any do any seats ever swing from being a swing seat? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a maybe... 10, 20 years ago, Texas would have been considered safe Republican. There wouldn't be any conversation about Texas whatsoever going Democrat or the possibility of them going Democrat. So yeah, this changes over time, depending on demographics. I was just going to say the interesting thing about Texas, Arizona, and Florida is that all of those, I don't know if you have it here, they're called snowbirds, where it's like people and mostly people that had money that are probably coming from larger cities uh, end up moving to the warmer states. So a lot of people from Chicago moved to Florida. My parents are retirees in Florida, and they registered to vote there. And so, yeah, Arizona, Texas, and, and Florida are all those states that have people that would probably be more liberal moving into them as they get older. So that's sort of interesting, especially with Texas, because Texas was, you know, they bleed red over there. So, yeah, that's a, a, I don't know, that's cool to think about. No, I was just going to build on that and just say um, that it's like, it is really interesting looking at like the, the swing state sort of demographics, because I think Florida is like split into like three sort of big categories that you have to focus on. So you've got like the, the elderly population, but then you've got quite a young and sort of like liberal sort of area. And like, it's really interesting within these swing states that it is sort of like a representation of like America as a whole. Um, and I think that's why they are so like volatile and don't know where to, well, as in like, it's quite unpredictable as where they're going to go because like you've got just views from absolutely everywhere uh, coming into one state. And interestingly with that is that um, you would think there's a lot of Latinx voters that are voting for um, Biden, but in... Uh, in Miami and the whole south of Florida, a lot of the people that Im- immigrated from Cuba, and so they are they do not like to hear the word socialism at all. And so when that's why Trump and especially I, I just came from Florida, and the all the marketing is like t- like they constantly are just saying socialist, socialist. That you know that's what Biden is, which is so not true. And I think it's interesting that this year that Trump has relocated his home state from New York to Florida. I do think that's a campaign move to solidify himself as a Floridian. Yeah. Yeah, and didn't he he hosted the town hall uh, from Florida as well? So he's really, really focusing in on Florida at the moment, which is interesting. The whole thing sort of leads me on to the question of, and I was speaking to Isaac about this earlier, of why don't we just do... This is going to sound very stupid, but why don't we just do a nationwide vote and the person who gets the most votes wins? And Isaac, you had some points against that. And I wondered if you could maybe go into that in a little bit more detail. Yeah. Just to finish. Uh, Yeah. This is going back to A-level politics. (laughs) It's fun. Um, It's just so that the smaller states don't get ignored. Their interests um, would be ignored if you just went to a popular vote. You'd sort of like focus on like California or New York. 
and what those sort of people wanted. And you wouldn't really consider little Fred in Wyoming. <laughs> and I suppose, like, if you look at, like, the implications of our referendum, so if you did, like, a, a, a vote in that sort of thing, so that's sort of, like, I think that was, a th- like, the democracy that they did in Athens, where they just, everyone voted all at once, and the bigger, the best, like, the one who won, the percentage-wise, um, becomes the winner. But as we saw with Brexit, it's, like, it won by like 50 was it 52 to 48 or 51 to 49 I can't remember but it was so close but can you imagine that every time there's an election like yeah yeah carnage yeah yeah but like I have a little bit of question man it's more like it is true that the result of the election gonna decide by the 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 number of the vote in swing states because like the the safe state is more like the the number of electoral college is quite close so I, I mean based on this year um, polls is more like the result gonna based on six states that are all swing states in the US. It's like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Arizona, and Florida. And that that's what I wonder. It's like because right now both parties they all target these six states. It does seem a bit unfair. I think that it's all that those states have a, as much power. Yeah, but I guess it's the same here. Hillary, I just I, in my researching this. Uh, I saw that Hillary didn't campaign in Wisconsin last time, and then in Wisconsin has always gone blue, and she lost to Trump in Wisconsin, and that was just kind of strange. So it's also a strange time in the United States. <laughs> Very. <laughs> you do see um, candidates targeting the swing states because they tend to be a reflection of the wider U.S., uh, it's the same in the UK, as you mentioned, Felix, like um, during the 1997 election, there was a term coined called the Worcester woman. And that like reflected um, a certain demographic that could have swung the election. And it did in favour of Labour. Um, but yeah, uh, the Democrats this year are going really hard over the Rust Belt states. And I think your point, Meg, about it being a strange time in the US is probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, this week so unfortunately that is just about all we've got time for today but hopefully that makes the nuts and bolts of the election itself a little bit clearer and we really hope you've learned something new today next week on the next episode we're going to be turning to focus on the candidates themselves that are running next month so make sure you tune in for that it's definitely going to be interesting and finally if you've got anything to say or you would like to get involved yourself we'd really love to hear from you you can email us um, news at freshair.radio or find us on twitter at freshair news thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs>